Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to another episode of Creation, Myth, or Miracle, a show that requires you to use your brain and think. After all, if you're considering what worldview might be true, naturalism, matter and energy is all there is, a creationist worldview in which God exists and the Bible is true, how about a worldview in which everything we see is strictly an illusion and we're actually being used as batteries within the matrix? Whatever worldview you think is true, if you are a thinking person, you need to compare it with the physical evidence that we observe in the world around us. Of course, that assumes our observations match the world around us, and we're going to assume that for the purposes of this show. I believe that, and I think most people do. And the truth is, if you think everything you see is an illusion, there's no point in even attempting to have a discussion. How do you know you're actually listening to me? That could well be an illusion, too. So we won't even consider that type of perspective because there's simply no way to do so rationally. Now, one technique that works really well for evaluating belief systems, people make assertions, that is simply a statement that they are claiming is true. They make assertions all the time. How do you go about challenging or thinking about whether or not such assertions might be true? Well, one technique I highly recommend is to apply what the assertion says to itself. Check and see if this belief, if this claimed truth, is even consistent within itself, if it's internally consistent or not. Here's an example. Ex-atheist Christopher Hitchens, and I say ex-atheist because he's no longer alive, and so logically, if his atheistic worldview were correct, then he simply no longer exists. If a biblical worldview is correct, then he is no longer an atheist because he now knows some additional information that he didn't accept while he was alive. Well, what did Christopher Hitchens say? He made this statement. That which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Okay. Where's the evidence for that assertion? Precisely what evidence led to that conclusion? Because if you can't provide evidence for it, then by its own statement, it should be dismissed. That's what I mean by applying the standards of an assertion to itself. Another classic example is the simplistic view of postmodernism, which is the statement that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And yet, that very statement is a claim to absolute truth. They're essentially saying it's absolutely true that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Again, an internally incoherent statement. Many, many assertions tied into various worldviews fall apart very quickly with that simple test. Apply them to themselves. See if it still makes any sense or not. So that was our quickie thought for the day and critical thinking technique number 106. Now let me point you to a pretty good source of information, a podcast titled Intelligent Design the Future. You can find it on the web or you can find it with your podcast client. Most of the episodes are pretty short, 10 to 15 minutes or so, and they provide some really good science info. And I listen to it very often. 
In fact, there were some episodes a week or so ago that were so good that I called the folks who produce it and asked permission to broadcast some portions of their material on this radio show, and they very graciously agreed to let me do that. And since I am a biblical creationist, and this show is an apologetic show about biblical creation, I want to make it very, very clear that intelligent design is not the same as creationism. Let's take a look at what intelligent design really claims it is. So I went directly to the horse's mouth, if you will, intelligentdesign.org. There are other sources. The Discovery Institute is probably the major website for intelligent design information directly from the people doing the research and publishing the papers and books. But intelligentdesign.org has a description of intelligent design itself, and it also references the entry on intelligent design at the New World Encyclopedia. So I want to share with you their description of it. Intelligent design is the view that it is possible to infer from empirical evidence that, quote, certain features of the universe and of living things are best explained by an intelligent cause, not an undirected process such as natural selection, end quote. Intelligent design cannot be inferred from complexity alone, since complex patterns often happen by chance. ID focuses on just those sorts of complex patterns that in human experience are produced by a mind that conceives and executes a plan. According to adherents, intelligent design can be detected in the natural laws and structure of the cosmos. It also can be detected in at least some of the features of living things. There you have it. That's what intelligent design is. It's really nothing more than applying the notion of looking for the most likely cause for the effect that we are observing, something that is done all the time in any kind of research or investigation. So I hope it's extremely clear that intelligent design is not creationism. And in fact, some of the major players in the intelligent design movement, as it is called, are definitely not creationists. So don't fall for the false statement that intelligent design is creationism. Opponents often even refer to it as intelligent design creationism in an attempt to assume you are too stupid to understand what it really is and that they can fool you into completely ignoring it by claiming it's something it's not. Don't fall for that nonsense. Look at the actual evidence. After all, be intelligent yourself. Now, as a biblical creationist, I certainly have no problem at all with intelligent design. Because I have no problem with the notion that there could be an intelligent designer, even for the universe itself. But just because it's consistent with my biblical creation view doesn't mean it's the same thing. So I hope we've made that abundantly clear. We've been discussing the fact that intelligent design makes the claim that certain features of living things are best explained by an intelligent cause, not an undirected process, such as natural selection. We're going to look at some details of that, but first, let's consider just how solid is the evidence for undirected evolution. If you believe Richard Dawkins, the Oxford zoologist, it must be remarkably strong because he made the following statement. It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, 
stupid, or insane. Or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. Well, that's a rather famous statement by Richard Dawkins, and it is an absurdly ridiculous one. There are many, many well-educated scientists who do not believe in evolution. They are neither ignorant, stupid, nor insane, nor are they wicked. They simply look at the evidence, and the evidence is unconvincing. And in just a few minutes, we'll listen to the beginning of one of the Intelligent Design the Future podcasts. But first, I want to discuss why the subject matter for that particular podcast is so important. And in order to do that, we need to do a bit of definition about what evolution claims. After all, if we're supposed to believe something, hopefully it's well-defined. Well, if you go take a look at good old Wikipedia, the omniscient source of all knowledge, there's an entry titled Modern Evolutionary Synthesis, and they summarize it this way. All evolutionary phenomena can be explained in a way consistent with known genetic mechanisms and the observational evidence of naturalists. Well, that's really only part of the definition of evolution, but it makes some very important foundational portions of it evident. Quote, known genetic mechanisms are supposed to be what account for everything we observe. So changes to the genetic content, the information contained within the genome, supposedly explain everything. Now, you don't have to go back too far in time to where they only talked about changes in genes. That's all that was considered important. The vast majority of our DNA supposedly was useless junk, leftover garbage from our evolutionary history. And it did absolutely nothing. It was just rubbish. That view is increasingly being proven completely wrong as virtually all DNA is used by cellular mechanisms. And such usage and importance is showing up in research on an almost weekly basis. So at least some evolutionists would now consider changes to the non-gene portion of the DNA to be consistent with evolution. So let's even consider that. Let's say that these known genetic mechanisms involve changes to the DNA, even the regions that are outside the genes. What about information that has nothing to do with DNA at all? That concept isn't even in the picture in terms of this modern synthesis. In fact, the view that gets promoted in the public for quite a while has essentially been, you are your genes. Genetics determines everything, etc. Well, think about when a creature begins life. Does it begin life as just a DNA molecule? No, it begins as a cell. And a cell has a lot more going for it than just the DNA contained within the nucleus. In fact, I did not inherit just DNA from my parents. I inherited an entire fertilized cell. So are there structures within the cell, not part of the DNA, that contain important information? Well, the answer is absolutely yes. And this is a fairly new discovery. And it is completely inconsistent with evolution as it is framed now. And the podcasts that we're going to listen to are an interview with Jonathan Wells, Is There Biological Information Outside of the DNA? And so we'll be listening to Casey Luskin, 
interview Dr. Jonathan Wells about his newly published article, Membrane Patterns Carry Ontogenetic Information That Is Specified Independently of DNA. In the first of a series of interviews, Dr. Wells gives an overview of his article explaining why DNA in an embryo can only do its job in the context of spatial information that is specified independently of it, that is, independently of the DNA. So sit back and enjoy this podcast from ID the Future. Hello and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Luskin, broadcasting with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle, Washington. Today we have in the studio with us Dr. Jonathan Wells, a senior fellow at the Center for Science and Culture. He's just published a fascinating new article in the journal Biocomplexity, a peer-reviewed open-access scientific journal that is the leading forum for testing the scientific merits of the claim that intelligent design is a credible explanation for life. At the heart of the scientific controversy over ID are questions having to do with the role and origin of information in living systems, and Dr. Wells' new article titled, Membrane Patterns Carry Ontogenetic Information That Is Specified Independently of DNA, attempts to address some of these important questions. So, Dr. Wells, thanks for coming on the show with us today. Happy to be here, Casey. So this is the first in a series of four interviews, maybe even more, where Dr. Wells is going to join us discussing his new article in Biocomplexity. We all know that DNA carries information, but today Dr. Wells is going to explain why DNA information in an embryo can only do its job in the context of spatial information that is specified independently of it. And some of that spatial information is carried by cell membranes. So the next two interviews after this one are going to talk about membrane information that comes in the forms of a sugar code and a bioelectric code. And the fourth interview will discuss what all this means for embryo development and evolution. So, Dr. Wells, let's get started talking about your new paper. Would you first summarize for us the main point of your article? Sure. Ontogeny is the technical term for embryo development. Many people think that embryo development is controlled by a genetic program written in the DNA. But this is false. Actually, DNA is expressed differently in different cells depending on where they find themselves in the embryo. This requires spatial information that's there before the DNA is expressed. And my article deals with this spatial information, especially spatial information in the form of patterns in the membrane. Can you give us some examples of embryos in which spatial information precedes DNA expression? Sure. One embryo system that's been studied intensively is the fruit fly. Well, in the fruit fly egg, before fertilization, various RNAs have to be placed in the right positions in the egg in order for the egg to develop properly. Some go to the head or the anterior end. Some go to the tail or the posterior end. Some go elsewhere. These RNAs are put into the egg by the mother as the egg develops. The thing is, When these RNAs enter the egg, there's already a head and a tail. That's how they end up at the head or the tail, the anterior or the posterior. So the anterior-posterior axis in the egg is there before the DNA starts to do its job in the embryo. Another example would be a frog egg. Frog eggs don't have an anterior-posterior axis. That comes later. What they do have is what's called an animal-vegetal axis. The animal pole is covered with dark pigment. 
the vegetal pole is full of heavy yolk particles. And this animal-vegetal axis is the reference point for which the anterior, posterior, and the dorsal-ventral axes of the tadpole are set up during development. Well, the frog egg, like the fruit fly egg, has its axis before the RNAs enter it from the mother to do their job. Those RNAs are then localized either to the animal pole or the vegetal pole or somewhere else in relation to that axis, but only because the axis is already there. So in both the fruit fly egg and the frog egg, the original body axis is put there before the embryo's DNA does anything at all. And it's put there by the ovary in the mother through processes that are mediated by the membrane and also by microscopic fibers in the cells called the cytoskeleton. Both of these features play a role. In my paper, I focus primarily on the membrane. So how exactly do cell membranes carry information? Cell membranes carry information because they're patterned. A cell membrane is made up of long molecules. Each one has an oily end and a water-loving end, an end that's attracted to water. These molecules, they're lipid molecules, they line up next to each other, and the oily end tries to avoid the aqueous liquid in which the cell finds itself. So these molecules make a bilayer with the oily ends buried deep in the membrane and the water attracting parts of the molecule on the outer surface and the inner surface. So this is the lipid bilayer membrane that surrounds every living cell and separates it from its environment. Oh, and besides the lipids, there are many proteins embedded in this membrane. And biologists used to think that these proteins were free to diffuse through the membrane, like corks bobbing in water. That was in the 1970s. By the 1990s, biologists knew that proteins are usually not free to diffuse throughout the membrane. Instead, they form domains spatial areas in the membrane that are distinct from each other and give a pattern to the membrane that provides actually spatial coordinates for the cell. Can you give us an example? Sure. Fibroblasts. Fibroblasts are cells in embryos that migrate throughout the embryo to provide structural framework for tissues and organs. The fibroblast moves by making, synthesizing microfilaments from a protein called actin. The leading edge of the fibroblast is rich in these microfilaments, and that's what propels it through the embryo. Well, how does the fibroblast know to make actin in that particular spot? What happens is the cell receives a signal from outside of itself. That signal activates molecules in the cell membrane, and those receptors in the cell membrane then send out a signal into the cell that reorganizes the cytoskeleton. And then the cytoskeleton starts delivering actin RNA to the leading edge of the fibroblast so that it can manufacture more microfilaments. And then the, the fibroblast, because of that, migrates in the direction of the external cue. Embryos actually contain uh, lots of migrating cells. The general term for them is mesenchyme or mesenchymal cells. They're very important because one class of them, for example, called the neural crest cells in a vertebrate, start out as part of the neural tube, which will form the brain and the spinal cord. But then at one point in development, they start migrating elsewhere to form facial structures, peripheral nerves, skin, 
and parts of the cardiovascular system. And after the mesenchymal cells do their migrating to their final destination, in many cases they transform themselves into what are called epithelial cells. Epithelial cells are very different, whereas a mesenchymal cell, like a fibroblast, has a front-to-back polarity. An epithelial cell has a top-to-bottom polarity. It just sits in place, surrounded by other epithelial cells, to form a protective sheet. And this transformation from a mesenchymal cell with front-to-back polarity to the epithelial cell with top-down polarity requires a rearrangement of the patterns in the membrane. That's how the transformation is accomplished. This is really fascinating stuff, Dr. Wells. Are there other examples of how membrane patterns carry information for embryo development? Yes, there's some very good ones uh, and well-studied ones. One system is called the sugar code. Another one is called the bioelectric code, which may sound a little science fiction-y, but uh, cells are actually known to generate their own electric fields, and the patterns of those fields provide information for development. The same with the sugar code, and I can go into more detail in our next interview. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Dr. Wells, for explaining to us about some of this information that is carried in animal embryos outside of the DNA. Again, we've been discussing a new article by Dr. Jonathan Wells titled, Membrane Patterns Carry Ontogenetic Information That is Specified Independently of DNA. You can read the whole article. It's available free online at bio-complexity.org. Again, that's bio-complexity.org. So go check it out and stay tuned for more with Dr. Jonathan Wells on extra genetic information in embryos. I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2014. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com. Thanks again to Casey Luskin and Dr. Wells for that interesting interview and some recent research. We will continue that interview on the next episode of Creation, Myth, or Miracle. I want you to think a little bit about this fact that information controlling or perhaps even determining many important aspects of the body plan of the creature that finally emerges as an adult from the developmental process of this single cell that some of this information, at least, does not reside in the DNA at all. Dr. Wells is talking about one very specific set of information types contained within the membrane of the cell. There are other sources of information that are not part of the DNA. A subject titled epigenetics is a growing field looking at a variety of locations from which information results. For instance, some of the epigenetic information controls whether or not individual genes are even expressed. That is, whether the information content of a gene is used at all may be determined by something outside the DNA. The fact is, you could have two completely different creatures that shared identical DNA. If the usage of that DNA information were controlled by completely different sets of epigenetics, different cell membrane information was involved in the layout of the body plan, etc., you could have very different-looking creatures that were 100% identical if all you looked at was the DNA. That view is completely contrary to the evolutionary notion that is promoted that DNA defines everything, and furthermore, we can explain every different type of living creature on the Earth by simply looking at 
undirected changes to the DNA, modifying the information content of the DNA in an undirected, sort of accidental type of way, is supposedly sufficient to explain amoebas to man. That view simply doesn't hold up in the light of modern knowledge about cells and genetics and epigenetics. Is it any wonder that many highly knowledgeable evolutionists are seeking completely different mechanisms to try to explain how it is that evolution occurred? And without a sufficient naturalistic mechanism, evolution is nothing more than a belief system that you must believe based upon faith, not evidence. So it certainly doesn't prove the biblical account of history is wrong, does it? SeeCreationMythOrMiracle.com